But uh, so here we go. We're, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be here for the next several weeks. We started this on Easter. And I'm going to start today just kind of as a bit of a recap, uh, just a one central idea of how spiritual warfare works. If you were at the early service last week, you didn't hear this story, but, but if you were at the other services, you heard this. I told you a story of football, and uh, shockingly, I never played football. I was never that aggressive, and my mom said I would get injured, and so I never played, uh, but my kids play football. And I, and I told you, if you were here last week on Easter, about this dialogue that took place between my sons. And so uh, my sons, there's a dichotomy between them. My oldest son, who uh, is getting closer to leaving the house, loves football, and uh, he has the, the physical presence to just be a good football player. My middle child, who will be at the next service in live stream, also loves football. He's probably the more talented in the family, very coordinated, can throw a ball well, um, but there's about a 80-pound, 7-inch discrepancy between these two young men. And so he was complaining, kind of licking his wounds about how unfair football can be, and you know, he lifts weights every day, and he I'm probably telling him too much, but he doesn't like me to talk about him like my oldest son doesn't care. But he was just saying, um, you know, life's not fair. And, and my oldest son stopped him and he said, quit whining, because right? that's what older brothers do. He said, quit whining. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are this size or that size. To be good at football, you just have to be a little crazy, especially at this level of football. He said, there are kids your size that do well in football because they have that crazy look in their eye. It's like they went and watched the Adam Sandler movie Waterboy before the game started, and they're salivating at the mouth, and you know, they, they want to go play the foosball. They're just kind of nuts. He said, if you have that mentality, you can do well at Ron Cauley in football, so quit whining. He's talking to him like an older brother. He said, you, you have to be able to do two things well, if you remember the first thing is you have to be able to take a hit. If you're scared to get hit, you might as well go be the water boy because you're never going to see the field. The second thing he said is this. You have to take a hit. And you remember from last week, you have to be willing to give a hit. And you don't have to be scared because you have a helmet, you have pads, you have cleats, you have a jersey. I mean, you have this shield around you, this protective cocoon on some level where you can take a hit and you can give a hit. And if you can do that, then you can compete. And the reason I tell you that story is that's how spiritual warfare works. You take a hit and you give a hit. And so the good news is you take a hit, but you take a hit through the lens of Christ already taking the hit. And so you are resurrected with Christ and the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so you're not fighting your own battles. This is what Greg's singing about. This is how we fight our battles. We're surrounded by you. We have a victory in you. We don't have to sheepishly play uh, the back seat, corner of the room, sucking our thumbs when the enemy's attacking. No, we can go on the pursuit. And we can take the hit because we have this armor of God that we're dissecting in the next several weeks. And even within the army, we, uh, armor of God, we don't just take the hit, but you're going to learn in one of the last weeks, is how we closed our men's conference out this weekend, you have this attack, you have this uh, you know, offensive weapon called a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that you can actually... Get after it in the spiritual realm that you don't have to play passive participant. And if we're all just to kind of get on the same page right now as we start this whole thing off, how many times does it feel like we're passively playing the role of just being victimized by the enemy? It happens all the time, and here's why. And all throughout this, you can write stuff down. 
however you see fit. But this is what's going on in the spiritual realm. Spiritual realm identified by things that are happening in the invisible that are affecting the visible. But the reason you get victimized in the spiritual realm is because believers, if you're a follower of Christ, and Satan are on an absolute collision course. They have polar opposite objectives. Jesus, God is, Jesus is truth. He says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. And then we learn all throughout the Gospels about the character and nature of Satan. And he's not just a liar. The Bible says this, that he's the father of lies. His very essence is this to lie. He, it's not just that he lies. He is in his very persona and essence and DNA, fabric of who he is. He is the father of lies. And so as we, when we come to Christ, pursue truth, and we have an adversary that's the father of lies, not just a liar, but the father of lies, then we then become on a collision course because our objectives are standing in polar opposite realms. And to not understand this is to play the victim. But praise God, we can take a hit, and we can do what? We can give a hit. And so here, here's how it starts. Read this last week, we're going to get into new stuff, but, but just to get us all on the same page, Ephesians 6, Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he says in verse 10, finally brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, there, there are different pieces that we're going to get into, it's not just one thing, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's a liar, so he schemes. And then this is where the invisible affects the visible. This is spiritual warfare 101. Here we go. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so therefore, because there is this invisible affecting the visible, therefore you have to fight in the invisible realm. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, here, here's a word that you want to underline through this series. Having done all, this is our response. We stand firm. We stand firm and we quote the Reverend Charles Hogel line, our missions pastor, that we don't fight for victory because Christ already rose. What did, did you remember from last week? We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. That's why we stand firm. We've already carved out a position. And to stand firm translates do not wander away or to be anchored in the truth. So I was at this men's conference. I was going to show you a video and I'm just going to tell the story because the video was too long and boring. And there's a climactic point of the video that lasts about a half second and you have to see it quickly or you miss it. But uh, I was at this men's conference and I knew it was going to be an interesting trip when we got to Dairy Queen in Redfield, and I started seeing people uh, that I didn't know signed up for the trip that were just kind of going there apart from the church van. And, uh, you know, Pastor Micah was at Dairy Queen, and there was this guy with him that is hilarious and uh, known him for a long time. He's an electrician. His name is Shane Anderson. You guys know who Shane is? Well, let me tell you who Shane is. Shane is the guy that goes on a men's retreat. And it's like you all stay in these dormitories, except I was the speaker, so I got the nicer room, which I don't apologize for. And so they all had their bunk beds. And I knew this was going to be an interesting trip when Shane, who is this bulky, you know, this burly guy with this big jacket on, ordered from Dairy Queen and then went back and ordered again two cheeseburgers. And he said, I don't know how much food's going to be on this trip, so I'm going to have these for tonight. 
And I thought, well, this is, this is telling. This is kind of how this group ticks. And I judged him for it, and then I ate one of his cheeseburgers at 11 p.m. And, uh, and so we're all hanging out. So just get in, your mi- get in your mind a guy that would order two cheeseburgers after a full meal at Dairy Queen because he wants to make sure he doesn't starve at a men's retreat where all they do is feed you. And uh, they're doing something really cool. They're playing Settlers of Catan in the dormitory of the camp at about 1 a.m. And he's eating his cheeseburgers. We're all hanging out. And then uh, not too long before that, there were these activities that you can participate in. And Shane, this, this big man, said, well, what I want to do is I want to go on the climbing wall. And the camp director, John, is the nicest guy in the world, potentially. He is the nicest guy in the world. And so uh, he does something very brave. When you climb the climbing wall, it's, it's crazy what this camp's been able to build. And so they have this huge climbing wall in this gymnasium. And uh, John, who's probably in his you know, late 50s, mid-60s, has to anchor in so that Shane, who's got about 70 pounds on him, can climb the climbing wall. So Shane's going up, and, it, and it's really a sight to see. I have the video if you want to catch me later. But he's climbing up this wall, and you can see the demise of Shane. You can see where his forearms are saying, please stop. And he's climbing higher and higher. And uh, Micah was just he was just laughing like a hyena in this video. And then he's watching his friend Shane climb this wall. And Shane gets to a certain point about a minute in, and he drops. And all you can see is poor John, the camp director, who built this wall with his bare hands. And he, Shane's probably up like 25 feet. And he, you see all of a sudden Shane drop, and then you see John's legs out of the corner of the video just fly by. <laughs> because I'm not a scientist, but that's kind of how physics work. And I thought in the video, all I saw was the freezing and the stopping of the video. I thought, well, we're going to do John's funeral. But the reason we didn't do John's funeral is because John, it wasn't his first rodeo. See, John knew something that before you ever decide that you're going to be the safety valve for Shane's forearms, what you have to do is you have to take the other half of your harness and you have to strap it to something that will anchor you into the other side of the wall. And so his legs fly by and then they come to a screeching halt. Because John's no dummy, and John is anchored in. And so when you stand firm in Jesus Christ, what you're choosing to do is anchor yourself in him. So that when the attacks of the enemy come, which comes through the lens of Shane, his Dairy Queen cheeseburgers, and 25 feet on a climbing wall, when you anchor in, you're safe. When you anchor in, you're protected. When you anchor in, you might feel like you're getting swept off your feet, but ultimately, in the spiritual realm where the invisible affects the visible, you can be safe. And poor Shane had to be the point of my sermon illustration, and I know you'll remember it, so it's worth telling you. And he divides this armor into six pieces. Paul's going to lay out six things. And the one that he's going to lay out first that kind of encompasses everything, because if you don't have this, you have nothing, is he is going to tell the men and women of Ephesus that are following Christ, you need to take up the armor of God, and you need to wear the belt of truth. That you need to put on, that you need to gird up your loins, other parts of the gospel are going to describe it like this, that you need to gird up your loins, and you need to wear this belt of truth. And what's interesting about the armor as we get started is that the first three pieces of armor are non-negotiable. You wear them all the time. You don't leave home without them. You always wear the belt of truth. You never take it off. The last three pieces are things that you take up. 
And so the first three pieces is having on. The last three pieces is you take up these things, and then you wear them as needed, prescribed as needed. And it's kind of like playing a baseball game where you always have your uniform on, and if you're going to play, you always have your cleats on. But there are sometimes you need the bat. There are sometimes you need the glove. There are sometimes you need the ball. And so those are as needed. But the belt of truth is you always wear this thing. Ephesians 6, 14. Here it is. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Why is that so critical? Well, number one, we already said it. Satan isn't just a liar. He's the father of lies. And so here's what the enemy knows. If he can get you to believe lies, he's got you. If you remember from last week, we talked about this prairie fire where the fire is burning all around you, and unless you go to a safety zone of the prairie that's already been burned so the fire can't get in, then all of a sudden you're going to burn alive. And so for that not to happen, you have to walk in truth. And so Satan knows if he can get you to believe lies and deceive you, then he already has you, and what he has within you is the ability to remove you from the protective covering of God that he establishes for you. The devil's biggest scheme is always to undermine God's character and credibility. He starts in the garden and he never stops. God creates man. Satan hates God. He goes to man and what does he do? He's, this, he's, trick, he's tricky. He's not blatant. He, he goes as a, a slithering serpent. And he does so in a way where he says, did God really say? Does God really want you to not eat that fruit because he doesn't want you to have more knowledge than him? He's scheming. He's deceiving. He's the father of lies. He's undermining God's character and credibility because once he does that, he has you. He wants you to believe this lie that God can't be trusted. And so he doesn't want you to do anything that would encompass wearing, not just having, but wearing the armor of God, more specifically the belt of truth. And so here's how we're going to go. We're going to go three parts. We're going to define the truth. And after we define the truth, we're going to look at things that keep us from the truth. And then we're going to close with what does it actually look like to wear this belt full time. So here's the definition. Write it down. Defining truth. Truth is, according to one of my favorite pastors, Tony Evans, who I'm following a study on right now, truth is, and I think he just got it from like Webster's, so it's clear, Truth is an objective standard by which reality reality can be measured. I'm going to say that again. What is truth? Truth is objective, and truth is an objective standard by which reality can be measured. If it doesn't have a measurement to it, if it doesn't stand outside of you, if it's not bigger than you, then it's not ultimate truth. And so here's what truth is not, and you might want to just kind of take mental note of this. Truth is not predicated on how you feel or what you even think. There's a, there's a famous pundit in, in political circles, and they've become very popular. It's a whole group of people. And one of them within the group always says this, facts don't have feelings. Have you ever heard that before? It says facts don't have feelings. It's facts stand outside of your personal whims. And thank God they do because no one's let me down more than me. Truth is a fixed standard to which all things must conform. And so let's get a bit theological. I, I heard this and it was so deep, I had to write it down and read it to myself like five times. And maybe you're smarter than me, but here it goes. God is truth. Here's a theological framework for God being truth. Truth in original form. Truth is reality in its original form, that which is real because it was originally real. And so then to look for truth, you have to find the original origin. 
And since God is the originator all, of all origin, only God can be the fixed standard of what is true. And because only with God and God alone, and I know this is getting kind of heavy, but just follow it. One more statement. And because only God and God alone is the pre-origin of truth, there is no pre-origin of God. There is no one you could go to to see if God knew something. He is the pre-origin. Then he becomes the standard and the ultimate truth in your life. Was that about as clear as mud? I'm not going to say it again. Go listen online. I think I'll butcher it worse. But, but let me give you clear, like a, like a metaphorical definition. There's a picture I want to show you. Anyone ever been to London? Who knows what that is? And not that you have to go to London to know what that is. What is that? Big, big Ben. That's Big Ben. I don't know why it's called Big Ben. I'm sure there's a great reason, and some people know I don't. But that's Big Ben. And so, again, truth is an objective standard by which reality is measured. Here, here's the point. Big Ben is the standard of real time. And now this is before satellite. This is before iPhones and iPads and you know, digital time frames that we know as a standard of time. So before that, Big Ben was the standard of time. When I was a kid, there was a number you would call. I don't know if this was national, if this was just in crazy California, but there was a number you call, and um, it was popcorn. And so you, you would dial popcorn, and, you know, you'd like the P would represent whatever number or whatever. And, and, and then it would tell you the, the daylight savings time or the, the standard time, and then you would take your watch. I even wore my watch today for this illustration. I wear it about twice a year. And then you would, when your time was wrong, what would you do? You would fix the time to the standard. And so if you live in London, I've seen Big Ben. It's pretty big, right? It's not just a hype show. It's pretty big. And if you live in London and these different time periods that Ben Big, ben big has existed, if you had a watch that was five minutes off, what you would not do is go to, you know, the royal family and say, hey, uh, my watch is five minutes off, but what I want you to do so that we can calculate and all be on the same page is I want to leave my time the same, and I would just like it if you would climb up about however many stories high and hang on the big hand until it gets five, minute fast, five minutes faster so that we can orient the time to fit my watch. Big Ben doesn't care about your watch. Big Ben doesn't care how much you love your watch. He doesn't care how much you spent on your watch. He doesn't care how cool your watch looks. He doesn't care how many gadgets you have on your watch. He doesn't care how many friends change their time to your watch. Everyone else can be wrong. Big Ben is the standard. Big Ben is the truth teller of time in London. That's his role. You could take 10 million people in Europe. They could all be five minutes off. Big Ben's time would still stand the test of time because he's the standard. That's how God works. Truth has a standard, and it's a fixed standard. If your watch is different than his, then you have to change. We, know, we all say we believe, like, whatever your truth is is your truth, whatever my truth is is my truth, until it becomes things that are actually critical in our lives, and then we all realize, no, that doesn't work, right? So... Um, I've flown in a few airplanes. I have someone that's like a, like a father to me who, who flies, and we used to fly more. And I can tell you, if he got his pilot's license from a Cracker Jack box, you know what I'm not doing? I'm not getting on his airplane. And why am I not getting on his airplane? Because 
I want to meet Jesus, but uh, not, not like that and not right now. Right? I mean, so, so you would never just fly with someone who didn't have the credentials to fly. You would never get on a plane and then have someone tell you, you know, where are we going? Well, we're going to go to Colorado. And how are we going to get there? I'm not really sure, but I'm about 70% confident if we just go this direction, we'll hit Colorado. No one would get on an airplane without a fixed standard of truth. No one would get on. Here's what they teach you in flight school. One of the only things I know. They teach you to trust something. You know what it is? Trust your instruments. Even above looking at your surroundings, you have these instruments that guide you. They have GPS systems now that navigate you. You trust your instruments because your instruments are fixed. Your instruments don't have feelings. Your instruments will lead you in the right place. And when you get up to a certain altitude and your head gets light and your mind gets a little crazy, all of a sudden you can think think right side up is upside down and you can get a bit loopy so you have to have a fixed standard that guides the plane. That's why you need control towers when you fly. You might think you're over here, but the control standard, the control tower is the fixed standard. You have to put on these headphones and you have to talk to the control towers and they tell you when to operate and how to move. Jesus is that control tower. He is the fixed standard. He is not just someone who tells truth. He is truth. He is the anchor. He is the reason that Shane doesn't plummet from the ground, standing firm, 25 feet up, because someone is anchored in. Truth is objective. Truth is fixed. Here's the second thing. There are things that get in the way of truth. There are things that get in the way of truth. And one of them is, write it down, I heard some pins. One of them is your emotions. And as someone who could talk about emotions for about 20 hours, I'm one of the most talkative, analytical, emotion-oriented people. One of the reasons I always felt like I grew up, you know, on a different planet than some of the men around me is most of the men around me were uh, blue-collar doers, and I was a contemplator and a thinker. So you can imagine how that felt as a teenager. My dad talked about feelings just about half past never. He didn't go there. And so emotions are important. They can tell you that all sorts of things are wrong. But if you rely on emotions to be your objective, fixed standard, you are going to absolutely regret it. There has to be something bigger than how you feel to dictate what you do. Or, the, or Satan will eat your lunch all day long. You're happy, you're sad, you're glad, you're mad. Your, your emotions play a role, and they should be secondary, but they can't be your measurement of truth. And how many times have you seen people all of a sudden make horrible decisions in life, and they say, well, I feel this, and they're going to bail on their marriage, and they say, well, I don't feel that I'm in love anymore, or I don't feel this, or I don't feel that. They'll leave their kids, they'll leave their family, they'll leave their job that they've been in for a long time. All of a sudden, the midlife crisis strikes. Have you met someone like that, or maybe, you know, do you know anyone like that? And you're going, I never thought they would fill in the blank. And in their emotional state, they decided to make that decision. Our emotions are not our fixed standard of truth. They get in the way of truth. Or even maybe your supposed intellect can get in the way of truth because then you see yourself as God and you have this cluster of information that you adhere to, but the problem is you're not all-knowing. And so in this grand scheme of all things to know, you have a very small plate And if ultimate truth that guides your life comes from your ability to reason and your ability to understand and your ability to learn about something in the latest, greatest phase, then all of a sudden you are becoming incredibly vulnerable to, number one, thinking that you are God yourself, 
And number two, just shifting your mind as soon as you read the next thing that's popular in pop culture. And so emotions can't get you ultimately to truth that's fixed. And your own intellect can't get you to ultimate truth that's fixed. Even your moral instincts cannot get you where you need to go because it's not a fixed standard. This is what we talked about at the men's retreat this weekend. How many of you, and I need you to get involved, I know you're paying attention, how many of you thought 20 years ago you never thought what you'd see living right now? You're like, I'm 20 years old. Well, okay, for the older people, when I was in college, there were Christians saying things that the way the world was going to go, and I thought to myself, that's a bit extreme. Turns out they were right. The Bible talks about there are things in the ways of man that we thought, you know, we, we, we take what we think to be true, and our morality flips on itself, and this is a sign of the end times, and it's coming to pass. Your moral instincts can't be trusted because your moral instincts are shifted like the wind. Things that were, were, things that were addressed 20 years ago as sin is now celebrated, and there's a reality of it, specifically regarding sexuality. It's not, it's not just accepted, it's celebrated, not outside of the walls of the church, but inside the walls of the church. People struggling with their, their very identity of if they're a man or a woman, their right to life. Like, I mean, things that we knew were wrong 20 years ago, now the church is kind of not even carving out these positions, and they're basing their opinions not on the authority of Scripture and ultimate truth and God's Word, but they're basing their opinion on moral instincts where they want to be liked and accepted by the culture around them, and they have no fixed standard. They have no instruments to fly. They have nothing that ultimately guides their ultimate truth. And so what they do is when they don't like what the Bible says, what do they do? They don't change their opinion. They just disregard the Bible. There's a story of an older guy going to the doctor. And uh, you get past a certain age, and I'm getting there now, all of a sudden the, the doctor has a laundry list. It used to be just a quick, like, not even paying attention checklist. Now they like to do blood work, and they're starting to talk to me about tests I have to take where they have to make me loopy to take the test, and I don't like that. And so uh, there's a story of an old guy who's far past me going to the doctor, and he goes to the doctor, and the doctor tells him everything that's wrong with him, and he talks to his son who's concerned about him because he can see that things are wrong about this old man in his life who's, who is his father, and the dad says, he says, well, how did the visit with the doctor appointment go? And he said, ah, oh, that doctor's crazy. He told me he needs to, I need to do this. He told me I have high cholesterol. He told me my heart's bad. He told me I need to lose 30 pounds. He told me I'm pre-diabetic. And the son says, that sounds super serious. I don't think the doctor's wrong. And he looks at his dad and he says, well, what are you going to do? And the dad says, hey, I'm just going to change doctors. Well, that doesn't work. You can change doctors. You don't like the truth, you switch. You don't like the church you, that tells you the truth, you switch. You don't like the Christian counselor that speaks truth into your life? You switch. You don't like your pastor? You switch. The truth is objective. It stands outside of us. It's not my opinion. You just switch. Here, here's another thing, and this is the big thing. The enemy gets in the way of truth. Your emotions get in the way of truth. Your intellect gets in the way of truth. Your moral instability or your moral uh, fabric that that, that's not fixed on an objective truth, the Word of God gets in the way of truth, the enemy absolutely comes to break down truth in your life. That you have this covering that we talked about at the top of this that is protecting you. It's the armor of God. It's the truth of God. It's the resurrection of Christ and the power of God living in you. But when you walk outside of that, 
All of a sudden, now the prairie fire can consume you. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. He says, For we, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Praise God. He says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so there is an inverse to this text. That when we do those things, praise God, we can take thoughts captive. But there is an enemy who comes to destroy, and he's trying to do the opposite of what Paul's talking about. He is trying to encapsulate us in those strongholds. He wants us to buy into lofty opinions that are raised up against the knowledge of God, and then he wants to infiltrate something in our lives, and he doesn't want us to take our thoughts captive. And what he does, this is his primary tactic because he's a liar. Look at me when I tell you this. The number one tactic he has is to infiltrate the mind. He wants you to think and believe things that are in direct opposition to the truth of God for your life. That's his tactic. The biggest war that you will ever fight is the war between, that's playing out between your ears. And I tell you this as someone who's just being vulnerable. This is my reality. I don't know if you can relate to it. My biggest battle is between my ears. Arguments, lofty opinions, breaking down of the truth of what God, who God is and what God says. Head games after head games after head games. The enemy has a relationship with you that is more dysfunctional than any high school relationship. He plays head games. He is like an insecure high school girl and an insecure high school boy who can never figure it out. And all they do is manipulate and all they do is play head games. And for that reason, we have to do something. We take this truth and we don't just say we believe it, but here's the difference. We wear it. It's the belt of truth. And like the other things that are the last three things in the armor of God, you don't ever take it off. It's not prescribed as needed. You get up, you wear it, or you pay the price. And so the closing idea is that we put on, when we're attacked by all of these things that we just prescribed, we put on the belt of truth. I told the guys at the men's conference, and it's kind of inappropriate, I thought, well, will I tell this in church? And I thought, yeah, of course I will. We don't ever want to be caught with our spiritual pants down. And that's why we wear a belt and we never take it off. A belt does things. A belt holds things in place. A belt prepares you to be ready to move. You never leave home without it. And so here's the historical background as we start to close. In Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, Romans were oftentimes soldiers. And every soldier was issued a belt. In fact, every person wore a tunic. And a tunic was simple. It was uh, this garment with a hole for the head and hole for the arms. And so it was kind of like a makeshift skirt or dress in a way. But there was something that girded it. There was something that covered it. There was something that made it ready for battle. And that thing was a belt. And they would often say about the belt to gird up your loins. Luke 12, 35, gird up your loins and have your lamps burning. Exodus 12, 11, God's people were called to leave Egypt out of slavery. And they were told, gird up your loins, put on your belt. It's time for battle. Because if you go into battle 2,000 years ago, and battle was up close and personal, you go into battle 2,000 years ago, and you just, you just have this tunic. Man, that, the wind blows. People are fighting. Swords are being thrown. All of a sudden, you're just trying to fight, and, and your, your, your garment all of a sudden just goes over your head in the wind, and you get stabbed in the heart. You can't have that, and so you have to be ready. You have to gird up your loins. 
And then the thing about girding up your loins is it's this idea of you're prepared for battle. You can't flap around in the wind. But what I want to close with is this idea. There is a massive difference between knowing about a belt and wearing a belt. There is a massive difference between knowing about truth and even reading truth and even circulating around a place of truth and actually wearing it in your own life. And the only promise you have for spiritual victory is not that you just know about truth, because here's the thing about truth. Satan knows about truth. You think you know the Bible? Satan knows it better. You think you know the schemes of the evil one? Satan knows it better. He knows lies. He knows truth. The way he's such a good liar is he already knows the truth and he knows how to lie about it. And so then the command becomes not just to know about a belt, not just to be close to the belt, but to absolutely wear the belt. To be in Christ and to say, you are a fixed standard of truth in my life and I clothe myself in you. And if you wonder why life is beating you up to the extent that you're getting pummeled, it's because you know about a belt, but you haven't put it on. Jesus Christ is the truth. And so we put on his truth. You know what religious hypocrisy looks like? We see this at New Life. Religious hypocrisy at its very core is the heart of a man or a woman who knows about a belt but doesn't put it on. And then even to a deeper level, hypocrisy looks like this. They want you to put on the belt and they're not wearing it themselves. We have seen that at church and it's nauseating. People that have all sorts of fixed standards of truth for everyone else in their life and they look great on the outside and they're confronted with their emotions and their will and they say to themselves, this rule applies to you, but I don't have to take this belt. Is that John Cena that does this? Who does that? I don't have to take this belt and I don't have to wear it myself. How nauseating is that to Christ? That's spiritual bondage. That's what spiritual bondage looks like. But here's the good news. God is truth, and the Bible says something about truth, that it does something. It doesn't just keep you accountable. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall do something. The truth shall set you free. Let's say it together. The truth shall set you free. That this isn't something, well, I better wear this belt of truth. No, I don't want to live in bondage. I want to live in freedom. And I don't know about you. I don't want to live in bondage. I'm getting old. I do not want to live in spiritual bondage. I've been there, done that. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. There's power in the truth. You're miserable serving the wrong master, and so you have to surrender in order to find freedom because the truth does something. The truth sets you free. And here's, here's the tool in the tool bag. Here's why it's first on the list. Here's why it's non-negotiable. Here's why it's not prescribed as needed. The reason it's so powerful is the truth sets you free, and then it gives you an ability to attack and be on the offense because when you start speaking the truth, and we'll get here in a several weeks, when you start speaking the truth into lies, when you start speaking the truth to the enemy, all of a sudden now the enemy is fleeing in your life. That's the promise. That because he is lies, he can't handle, like Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. And so Jesus is in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, and Satan's attacking him on every front. And while he's attacking him, Jesus is combating him with the truth, and he's combating him with ultimate truth, which is the word of God that we'll get to. And he says this, he says, 
But scripture says, but scripture says, Satan is saying, you know, if you're really God, then jump off this building. If you're really God, then, you know, eat this food. And, and, and so he st- turned the stones into food. And he says, man shall not bri- bri- live by bread alone. He says, it is written. And then he says, it is written. And then he says, it is written. And what happens at the end of that exchange? Satan does something. He can't handle He can't handle the truth. He can handle your lofty opinions. Look at me. He can handle your empty philosophies, but he can't handle the truth. And so you know the truth. The truth sets you free, and then you use the truth so that the enemy flees. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your truth. We want to walk in it. We want to bathe ourselves in it. We want to take your belt. We want to tie it to our tunic so that we can effectively get in the battle. We love you. We thank you for the freedom that your truth provides. And we want to follow you with our whole heart. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen.